the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Wednesday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, church questions, whatever's on your heart. All you need to do is provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. And beyond that, uh, you can use our free San Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Just hit the call now banner uh, there and on the KSLR mobile app in case you're driving in the streets today. Hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Got some things going on. Of course, tomorrow Paula is going to be live in the studio with me on the date day edition of the program. And uh, after that, um, we'll see what she has to say. Um, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, I'm going to be teaching great chapter, Second Kings chapter 19. You want to talk about the power of God and the faithfulness of God. And if you want the heart that will get your prayers answered, boy, what a great chapter this is using Hezekiah as our example. Okay, let's get to some questions, and we will then um, see what's going on. Had a question sent in. This is kind of always hurts my heart. It's uh, anonymous from our email inbox. Hello, Pastor Ron. I wrote to you about four months ago and asked uh, if I was still married in the eyes of God after a legal divorce. Per your advice, I spoke to my ex-husband and explained that in order for us to continue to live together, we had to remarry so that we do not compound the sin of the divorce and trample on the grace of God. He said he was not going to be pressured, and she has pressured in in um, quotes. Uh, he was not going to be pressured to remarry. We've been separated since. Let me stop there. I'll get to the rest of this question in a moment with heartbreaking, but God bless you. You know, people ask for counsel all the time, and typically they won't take that counsel uh, because it's going to cost them too much. You chose Jesus over this man, and God bless you for doing so and having the courage to, if, when he says, no, I'm not going to be pressuring Mary, okay, then I got to go. I can't tell you how pleased God is with you. Now, I realize there's pain involved in this. Uh, you made a sacrifice, but you did it for Jesus, and God bless you for it. Now, let me continue. I recently read that even after a divorce, you're bound to your ex-spouse for the rest of your life. Is that true? I'm ready to accept a life of singleness if that's what God calls me to, but I don't want to feel the emotional connection to my ex-husband anymore. A friend said that I need to pray to God to cut the soul tie with him, and that's in quotes as well. Is that what I need to do? Or am I biblically bound to my ex forever? Thank you for your time and biblical direction. Signed, Anonymous. Uh, There's no such thing as a soul tie. Uh, your friend is probably a part of a 
crazy charismatic church and and it just it's just not biblical counsel so forget the soul tie and know you are not bound to your ex-husband forever and ever again because i didn't have all the details on your divorce i don't know who was at fault um, but in this particular case, you tried to reconcile with this man. He refused. The Bible is very clear. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. And this man, your ex, no matter what he says with his mouth, is an unbeliever. He didn't want to be pressured to remarry. Can you imagine? So, no, you are not bound to him for the rest of your life, period. Uh, nor do you have to accept a life of singleness. What you need to do is follow Jesus, get as close to Jesus as you possibly can, follow him uh, for all you're worth, just surrender everything to him. And if there's a man in your future, following Jesus will lead you to that man. But no, God is not a punitive God. He's not looking to make your life miserable. He's not saying, well, you blew it, so so I'm going to make your life miserable and lonely. Nothing like that is true. So you do not have a soul tie to this man. Um, the unbeliever has gone. And now, Anonymous, you are truly free to follow God with all of your heart. So do that. You fall in love with Jesus. Paula always calls uh, Jesus her first husband. She has two. Fortunately, only two. <laughs> but she, she said, Jesus is my first husband. And I get that. I, I understand that. Jesus is the one who cared for her when I was a jerk. Jesus is the one who was always there providing for her. Jesus was the one who made her know that she was loved. That's your Jesus. Let him be your first husband. And when you're ready, and when there's a man that he is preparing for you who is going to be ready, believe me, you'll meet that man. Just make sure this time, Make sure this time that this man really and truly loves Jesus and it's not just lip service. So I hope that encourages you. And again, I want to congratulate you on your obedience, uh, even at great cost. So I'm, I'm really, really pleased about that. Here is a question from Joseph. No matter what biblical evidence I give my friends, they just won't believe. What can I do? Joseph, there's nothing you can do to make them believe. You know, I, I think sometimes we think it's got to be my uh, presentation of the gospel or nothing you can do. You can pray for him uh, or your friends, plural. Um, you can pray for them. But, but the most powerful witness that you'll have is the change in your lives. Don't argue with them. Just let them see that you've got something. Remember, they knew you when. So now, remember that they're watching you. And show them a life that's filled with joy. Show them a life where the things that they're longing for, you know, the peace of heart and, and, and a joy that is persistent even through difficult times, those are the things everybody's looking for. And when they see that you have it, and then you continue to pray for them. Believe me, the Holy Spirit will be using you to work on their hearts. But you see, your friends aren't interested in biblical evidence. They're not interested in the Bible. Salvation is not a work of Joseph. Salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. So you proclaim the gospel to them. Whenever you're around them, you talk about Jesus like he's your best friend. You let him know that you're praying for him. You let him know that you can't imagine heaven without them. And then you can challenge them if they want to disagree. You can challenge them and say, you know, just watch my life. I have what you guys are looking for, and I'm going to be praying for you. And leave it on good terms, but don't take personal responsibility for their willful failure to believe. That's really important. We can't win anybody. God is the one who wins them. Maybe you're just there in their lives to plant some seeds. Somebody else will water the seeds later down the road. Somebody else will harvest the seeds. Who knows? But you follow Jesus. Let me say one thing generally, not just to Joseph, but generally, you know, we, we take way too much responsibility on ourselves. Uh, we want to debate with people. We want to, to prove this and to prove that. Remember again, I'm repeating that salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. 
And people who are not willing to stop sinning are not going to get saved. People who think they're okay the way they are, they're not going to get saved. And that's not your responsibility at all, Joseph. Your responsibility is to tell them and to show them what Jesus looks like in the life of somebody who's committed and submitted to him. Good question, Joseph. Thank you very, very much. Dell says, um, why is it that many Christians I know are okay with lifestyles and abortion, um, uh, etc., that oppose God's standard? Um, Dell, there's a lot of people that want to believe they're Christians that really aren't Christians. So that's what you've got to understand. You know, I, I said this in response to a question, I think, um, late last week. Uh, you cannot be pro-abortion. That's murdering children. You cannot be pro-abortion with the Holy Spirit, Jesus in us. Um, you, you just simply can't be. That's so antithetical to everything that he stands for. So um, that person is not a born-again Christian, period. And they can say, no, I gave my life. I answered invitation. None of that matters. You see, when you meet Jesus, he changes you. He changes your thought process. He changes the things that are appealing to you. So you simply cannot be pro-abortion um, and call yourself a Christian. Now, I mean, obviously, you can call yourself a Christian, but, the, but, but it's not a reality. The same thing is true with a, um, a homosexual lifestyle or a trans lifestyle or or uh, the lifestyle of somebody who is continually angry, uh, the lifestyle of a heterosexual man or woman who wants to remain sexually active uh, without the benefit of marriage. People who say they know Christ but are engaged in behavior that both Galatians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God Christians cannot do those things. Now, sometimes we mess up. But when we do, we hate it. But to simply walk with Jesus and say, I'm going to do what I want to do, Jesus said, what you want me to do, that's proof that that these many Christians, so-called Christians that you know, are not really Christians at all. So pray for them and tell them. You know, obviously you're in conversations with them. So when somebody says, well, I'm pro-choice, uh, I say, well, how can a Christian be in favor of murdering children in the womb? How is that even possible? How can a Christian, somebody who's been born again by the blood of Jesus Christ, how can a Christian support a lifestyle that's going to end up sending people to hell because they won't stop sinning? That's rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If they do that unto death, they're going to die. So challenge them. Don't let their statements just go unchallenged. Challenge them. Talk to them. Don't debate. Don't argue. Don't get angry. Just let them know that the Bible says that people who live like you live or support the lifestyles that you are supporting will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then get to know your Bible well enough that you can show them where it is, Dell. So I hope that helps you. But uh, I think one of the realities, and it's a sad reality, we like to believe everybody, you know, everybody who answered an altar call, everybody who's baptized, everybody who says they're a Christian really is. But the sad reality is that, that um, and this is just my number, not based on anything other than my own experience, I expect Dell, that fully 50% of the people that are sitting in churches regularly on Sunday mornings are not saved, not born again. I say that because if we were, the church would have so much more power. If we were, the church wouldn't entertain the compromise that we have entertained. We would be interested in pursuing personal holiness. We would take Paul's advice and find out what pleases the Lord. That's what he tells us to do. We'd also listen to the Apostle Paul when he tells us to aim for perfection. That Look, we can't be perfect, but we can try. And I want to be. And pleasing Jesus is, I think, the most significant thing any of us can do. Find out what pleases him and do that. Mickey asked this question, how can I balance between recognizing Mary as the mother of God and not worshiping her? 
Um, Mickey, evidently you have a Catholic background. Um, for those of us who do not, uh, this is no problem at all. Um, read Mary's Magnificat, Luke chapter 2. Um, see what she says about her and about her God. She calls Jesus her Savior. Um, she's just a sinner saved by grace. Uh, you know, when Jesus was on the cross, he didn't say, Mom. He said, Woman. And he said to John, She's now your mother. Take care of her for me. He loved her very much. And Mary is a giant of our faith. I mean, all you have to read is her response to Gabriel when he told her that she'd been chosen to be the mother of the Christ. May it be unto me as you have said was her response. She knew it was going to create all kinds of difficulties. So great, great faith. This was a woman who was pure. This was a woman who loved God, and a very young woman at the time who loved God. And in spite of the difficulty, in spite of the difficulty, she said yes. And so we honor her for that. Now, she's not a saint. Uh, she's not the queen of heaven. She's just a human being who was a sinner who was forgiven of those sins. Again, her Magnificat makes that really, really clear. So I don't think there's any tension between the two. Uh, those who say, well, we don't worship Mary, we venerate her. Well, much of the Catholic Church, whatever you call it, venerating or worship, but, but it, it equals worshiping her. And Mary would be humiliated by that worship. She would be absolutely embarrassed by that worship. You know, the old idea that, well, if you really want something from somebody, you go to their mother, which is what I've had Catholics tell me. Why do you pray to Mary now that you're born again? Well, you know, no, it's not true. Mary is like you and me in heaven. And God loves her just the way he loves us. Are there some special rewards for Mary in heaven? I'm certain. I'm certain. Personally, I can't wait to meet her. I have lots of questions I'd like to ask. Now then, of course, we'll know all the answers. But my point is, there, there shouldn't be any tension between um, honoring Mary for her great faith, honoring her for her care of our Lord. You know, we're, we're brothers spiritually speaking to the Lord, brothers and sisters. And we can say to Mary, Mary, thank you for taking care of my Lord and my Savior. And I think in heaven, Mary will just smile at us and we'll know that the honor was all hers. So Mickey, I hope that makes sense to you, but you got to forget the Catholic upbringing and the, the, the Catholic traditions that have sort of been pounded into your brain and let them go. 340-9585. The phones have been quiet this week. We'd love your calls and questions. They're toll-free, 877-630-KSLR. Kevin says, Pastor Ron, will you talk about self-control, please? I know it's a gift of the Spirit, but I struggle with it. How can I practice it? Kevin, I would love to talk about this, but let me make a correction right at the beginning. It's not a gift of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. So when you're walking in the Spirit, you will exercise self-control. It's that simple. And I think too many of us, Kevin, and your question sort of hints at this, but I think too many of us are, are just waiting for God, the Holy Spirit, to do something where it's easy to control ourselves, especially in the area of temptation. Um, but, but that's not what happens. When you're walking with Jesus, when you're sowing, Paul says, to the Spirit, you'll reap the fruit of the Spirit the benefits of the Spirit. And so you just be with Jesus and you will not have a problem with self-control. You don't have to get angry, lose your temper. Um, you don't have to give in to temptations of all kinds. Um, you simply hang out with Jesus and you'll say yes to the things he wants you to say yes to and no to the things that he doesn't want you to participate in. That's what self-control all is. Self-control also, Kevin, goes into another area, at least in my mind, that I think will help you with the whole idea of self-control in the first place. 
And, and that's very simply that, that self-control um, will, will, will teach you discipline. The discipline of reading the Bible, the discipline of prayer, the discipline of, of surrendering your day to Jesus every single day, remembering that he's right there with you, though you can't see him. And if he's right there with you and you recognize that when you're tempted to do something you know he doesn't want you to do, then self-control uh, is, is a non-issue because I'm just going to say no. Paul, writing to Titus in chapter 2 of his epistle, says that the grace of God has appeared to all men. The, the, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, is what it says. And then it says, it, the grace of God, teaches us to say no to all unrighteousness and to live self-controlled, upright lives. So it's just the grace. It's the daily grace for living. You know, Kevin, the, the, the picture of the man in the wilderness is a wonderful picture of having to walk with Jesus here. You know, God told them that manna would be there. Uh, only go out and get enough for the day. Don't, don't pick up extra for tomorrow. Don't try to hoard because this man is only going to be good for one day. Well, manna in the Old Testament is a picture of the grace for living every day in the New Testament that we get to be blessed by. And what we need to understand is there's enough grace every day, every single day, to say yes to the things of God and no to the things of the flesh or things of this world. And your goal when you get up in the morning is you have to be use all the grace. I'm going to use all the grace, God, for your glory. And then you go to bed at night knowing that there's going to be a whole new batch of grace from heaven awaiting you for the next day. So it's really a, a, a day-by-day, step-by-step process. And the truth is, Kevin, when you're hanging out with Jesus, you will exercise self-control. Again, you don't have to lose your temper. You don't have to give in to fear or doubt. You can take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. And if you'll understand that those are promises of God, then you can, by faith, appropriate them in your own life. So don't wait for God just to do something. Um, you do it. Take a step of faith. Walk in obedience to the Lord. Acts 5.32 says God gives the Holy Spirit and the, the, the context there is in power to those who obey. So live an obedient life, walk in the will of God, and self-control will be a result of that. And it'll change your life. It really will. Kevin, hope that helps. I love it when people are asking, how can I do this? How can I do that? I had a guy one time... Uh, in Bible college, he was praying for, for, he wanted me to pray for him for patience. He's a young man. I said, his name was Mark. I said, Mark, I, I don't want to pray for patience. I mean, God will teach you patience. I promise you, if you're not patient, God will teach you patience. He's going to fill his your heart with his love so that you can be patient with those he loves, and you'll begin to love them. But But for me to pray for patience means there's going to be all kinds of trials. He said, I know it, but look at all the good things. And he's talking out of Romans 5. Look at all the good things that, that, that trials bring. And um, I just told him, I promise you, you won't have to pray for patience. God will teach you patience because he wants to use you. Turns out the guy is also a pastor. Uh, been pastoring now for many, many years. And he's really, really a good guy. Thanks for bringing up that memory. Here is the last question for this half. Um, Adriana says, we're supposed to love our neighbor, but why do so many Christians want nothing to do with migrants? Um, too many Christians have politicized the issue. Too many Christians have the wrong kingdom in view, Adriana. Um, you know what? I believe that there ought to be laws and where there are laws, we ought to follow those laws. I think if our country has decided as a whole, the only way we can decide that is in election. If our country has decided as a whole that there should be no borders or no restrictions, then they need to change the laws. But as long as there are laws, those laws need to be respected and observed. 
Now, the problem, of course, is that we're in a situation now where the laws are not being respected. They're just being thrown away. And, and our country is literally being overrun. And it's causing causing all kinds of difficulties um, uh, all over our, our country. Um, but as a Christian, it's our responsibility to remember that as believers, our kingdom is not political. Our kingdom is from heaven. And our responsibility is to love the people that God puts in front of us. Uh, our neighbor is anybody that we come across. And we need to love them. And Jesus will help you do that. So separate the political issue and the love issue. And wherever anybody comes in front of you, you love them. You share Jesus with them. And when you do that, Adriana, I'm believing you'll be loving your neighbor, even if you support maintaining the laws of this country and our border policies. So I hope that makes sense to you, Adriana. This isn't a political issue, and too many Christians are divided by politics. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the show, 340-9585. This is the word to stand up for life. I'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday show. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Scott uh, from our mobile app that just came in. Pastor Ron, what is your take on the Pope's recent announcement that homosexuality is a sin, but not a crime. Um, Scott, I, I all I did was read the headlines, so I didn't read the text. And the headline that I read suggested that he was saying homosexuality was okay. And, of course, we expect that from this pope. Uh, homosexuality is not a crime. Um, and, and I think we all recognize that. Um, but homosexuality is a sin. So if that's what he said, Scott... That'd be the very first thing that he said in a, a long time that, that I've been agree- in agreement with. But you see, I know his other um, uh, statements and rulings on, on homosexuality and other things that, that uh, you know, where he just denies the, the, the Bible completely. So um, I'll read his statement uh, based on your question, but... Frankly, Scott, I've stopped caring about what the Pope says or does. Uh, he is an apostate, and unfortunately, um, when he stands before the Lord, to whom much is given, much is required, he is really, truly going to stand before God in terror. And, um, you know, what what every person that represents Jesus ought to be saying about homosexuality and to homosexuals is that this is a lifestyle that will condemn you to an eternity in hell. And you have to choose between doing what is right, that's choosing God, and doing what is wrong, which is going to result in that eternity in torment. So, very simply, uh, homosexuality is a sin. Sin separates us from God, and you must be born again. Um, it is not a crime. Um, I want to affirm that um, those of us who are believers especially ought to be at the forefront of treating people who live homosexual lifestyles uh, or trans lifestyles or other aberrant lifestyles. We need to treat them in love, with respect. Uh, they have the same, they have rights guaranteed to the citizens of this country. We have to recognize those rights and we have to recognize their right to make a free will choice of their own about how they're going to live. But what we cannot do, Scott, is we can't give them any comfort at all with the choice they made. There's going to be consequences for the choices we make. And if you make a choice to reject Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then the consequences are going to be extreme. And it's our responsibility to tell people about that. So, Scott, thank you for that. I, you've motivated me to go look up his um, 
his statement now. I'll do that. Here is a question. This one is from... Hold on, I'm hitting the wrong things. I'm having a hard time with my vision today, so please help me. This one is from Kanga. Kanga, never heard from you before. That's a name I would have remembered. He says, what is your interpretation of the iron mixed with clay in Daniel chapter 2? Kanga, I love Daniel. I, I, obviously, getting through Daniel chapter 2, I think it took me three Bible studies to get through it. So I'll have to give you the Cliff Notes versions but this is where where Nebuchadnezzar had a, a dream, and uh, he wanted to know what it was. So he went to his uh, his people and said, his sorcerers and magicians, uh, not only do you have to tell me the meaning of the dream, but you have to tell me the dream. And, of course, they just blew up. Nobody can do that. Nobody can do that. And, of course, there's somebody who could, Daniel. And so um, he interpreted the dream. I won't go through the statue. Um, piece by piece, but here's the interpretation of the green uh, of the dream: the head of gold. That's the first thing. Uh, that's uh, he says in verse 37 of chapter two: "You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory." Um, and that's what he's saying. God is telling Nebuchadnezzar, "You are the head of gold," uh, and that's the only part of this dream that, from Daniel's perspective, was in the present. That's where Daniel was living. Everything that follows is yet future from Daniel's perspective. Uh, it says, In your hands he's placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he's made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful dictator the world has ever known. No one in, in the history of the world has had much power or authority as he did. He could change laws uh, on a whim Whenever he saw fit, nobody could challenge him. Um, he was bound by no other laws. There's no court of appeals. Whatever Nebuchadnezzar said went. Now, his empire, and this is, I think, significant, his empire lasted only 66 years. And Nebuchadnezzar, now we know from chapter 4 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven a born-again believer. Now, his kingdom was likened to gold because his monarchy uh, I think was what God considered the only pure form of government, king of kings. No one should disobey or argue with the king of kings and obviously that's a picture of Jesus Christ. He says the next part of the statue is after uh, after you another kingdom will arise. Now this kingdom, this is actually the Medes and the Persians and this kingdom comes into power in the fifth chapter of Daniel um, um the kingdom was inferior to Babylon, and yet um, is represented by the two arms of verse 32 in this chapter. That's the the, the uh, Persian Empire, um, Medo-Persian Empire, headed by Cyrus. So uh, that's the second part of this. Um, it's a powerful empire, but as I said, inferior to Nebuchadnezzar. Then the next part of it, a third kingdom, the one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And historically, we know this third kingdom is Greece under Alexander the Great. Alexander was born in 356 B.C. He died at the age of 33 years in 323 B.C. Um, and this is the first of all of the empires that ruled the entire earth. Um, Alexander, one of the most interesting figures in history. The end of this uh, dream, uh, this interpretation, is uh, verse 40. Uh, he says, finally, there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so will it crush and break all the others. Now, the fourth empire, Kanga, is not only the strongest and the most ruthless, it also lasted the longest, more than 500 years, what is peculiar about this empire is that it never really ended. This is a reference, of course, to the Roman Empire. They were never defeated military. They just, it just sort of stopped being a world power. And it's literally because they send themselves uh, out of uh, importance. Um, this is the empire we know that was ruling when Jesus came the first time. 
we also know it'll be the revived Roman Empire, which will be ruling when the man that we know as the Antichrist, the counterfeit Christ, um, comes bursting onto the world scene um, right after the rapture of the church. So that's important. There's so much there. Um, feet and the toes that were partly of baked clay and partly of iron. Uh, there's an awful lot there. I don't have time to go into it all here. But, Kenga, what I would recommend that you do is go to our website, calvaryessay.com, and listen to the Bible studies that I did. Or you can look directly at my notes. Uh, my commentary on the book of Daniel is there in total. Thank you for that. Let's go to Belmont now and talk with James on line one. James, thanks for calling and being patient. You're on the air. Hi, James. Yeah, I just kind of went into a little bit of blows, so I'm hoping that uh, that my connection here with you improves. Um, I've been doing some study uh, recently. I've gone back to uh, Colossians, and um, I had a question. Um, there's a, uh, a phrase that, uh, that they use, and so that I don't mess it up because it's got me that confused. I wanted to stop here and read it to you. Um, Colossians 2, uh, and uh, the glasses would have helped, but uh, they're in my pocket. So, uh, <laughs> I, feel, I feel your pain. And so, well, you know, that's where I keep them. I never wear them. I just carry them around with me. Um, I think it's verse 8. Uh, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and, and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than that of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so it, not just in verse 8, but the part that, that confuses me is the, um, the, and it's in verse 20 again, talks about the elemental spiritual forces of this world. And so um, if, if you would, I'll, I'll just listen on there. Uh, just, um, I just don't understand that phrase. Uh, the rest of it makes perfectly good sense to me. I just don't know what to make of that. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate it, and I'll, I'll do the best I can. I'll get to uh, talk about verse 8 very quickly because it's very straightforward, and then I'll get to verse 20 and see if that can help you. Uh, where Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. I like the New King James translation. He says, see that no one cheats you. I like that. Um, Through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition, the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Um, The Living Bible has a, and I'm not a a proponent of the Living Bible, but it's a wonderful translation of this verse. uh, And explains things. It says, don't let others spoil your faith and joy with their philosophies. They're wrong and shallow answers built on men's thoughts and ideas instead of on what Christ has said. Now, the word that's translated as philosophy there literally means the love of wisdom. Um, tonight, uh, in this passage of Scripture, rather, um, it's just God saying, keep your eyes, your heart, your mind on things above, and don't be swayed by the things of this world. That's really important, and so many of us uh, are so focused on uh, the things of this world and, and the philosophies of this world rather than on the Word of God. And the reality is that we're that way because we're not in the Word of God. Uh, I've said many times uh, to my church and, and several times on this radio show that men and women who proclaim to be Christians, and I'm not doubting their salvation, I'm just saying that's what they say, The reality is, if they're not men and women who are men and women of the Word, if they're not workmen or workwomen rightly dividing the Word of God, then they are going to be influenced by this world. The propaganda is overwhelming, especially now with the Internet, and even more especially with social media, this constant bombardment of worldly ideas. Those worldly ideas are going to take over. We're going to be convinced that the things of this world are okay. So uh, that's, that's, I think, a, a pretty easy application of that verse. Now, verse 20, I think you said 20, but 
That's not what you said. Verse 20 says this, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Um, Paul, of course, was dealing there with uh, legalism. Uh, But legalism, if we keep reading, these are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. And and James, legalists always have the appearance of of spirituality and wisdom. They can sound so smart. But listen to what Paul says. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual intelligence. So those are things that we really and truly need to understand. And um, I don't know why that's difficult. You read another verse, and since I don't know which one it was, I can't get to it right away. Verse 20. Oh, well, that's pretty straightforward then. Since the things of this world have no real value, don't let anybody put you under some sort of bondage to those rules. And that's what he's saying. Too many Christians, James, are known for what they are against rather than what they're for. And the the legalist is always, you can't do this and you can't do that. Um, The reality is we need to tell people that we're pro-Jesus. We're all Jesus all the time. So, James, I hope that makes sense. If not, I'll be here tomorrow. You can call back and get a, a better answer. Here is an anonymous mother. My teenager has come to father and I and pointed out some of our behavior that is not like Jesus. Oh, brave kid. My husband is offended and says our son doesn't respect us and is dishonoring us. He was respectful pointing it out and he was right. Was he being disrespectful? You know, and I so appreciate your honesty. I so appreciate your honesty. You say he was respectful, and you say he was right. So now the question is, what are you and your husband going to do about it? Now, here's a place where your husband needs a little bit of help from you. When you and your husband talk about this, your husband says, um, our son offended us, he doesn't respect us, he's dishonoring us, you can say, but was he right? Was he right? It took a lot of courage for your teenager to come to you. I wish all of our kids would do this. You know, moms and dads have to be held accountable. They can't say Jesus and live in a manner that that is, is opposite what Jesus would have us do or say. So it's really important that, that you and your husband sit down and talk about it. One of the most important things that you could do with this son or daughter, you just said teenager. Oh, no, you said son in here. So your son. Uh, is is you and your husband after talking about it and repenting before God, you can go and ask him for his forgiveness. Please forgive us for misrepresenting Jesus. Please watch my life now and hold me accountable. This is a son who loves you so very, very much. Now, typically, we men, our first response is to go on the defensive and that sounds like what your husband did. But talk to him about it. Say, so, you know, I think he was being respectful. But more important than that is he was right. And then you can talk about the things that you and your husband were doing. The kind of life that you were living that wasn't God honoring. And believe me, there, there's so much that the Holy Spirit can do in your family. But it starts with you and your husband sitting down. And, and dealing with this issue before the Lord. I think the result will be that your husband will one day look at your son and say, you saved me. Not not like in the way Jesus did, but, but you kept me walking with Jesus. You called me out. God bless you. And, uh, you know, I don't know where you go to church, but I can tell you, if you and your husband and your son went to our church and it came to that place where your husband and you together could say, you know, he was right. We're, we're living a duplicitous life. We're not rightly representing the Lord. 
believe me what a great testimony that will be for your husband i'd have him do a devotion at a men's retreat i really would because we need to be able to say i was wrong and my son he hurt my feelings he hurt my pride but i realized that my feelings didn't matter and my pride was killing me and when i really sat down and examined my heart he was right And I had the opportunity to go before the Lord and repent and ask my son for forgiveness. And what this will do for your relationship going forward is more than wonderful. I promise you, it's more than wonderful. God bless your son for his courage and his stand for Jesus Christ. And uh, God bless you for being honest enough to say, well, you know, he's right. Now you and your husband need to deal with this. And, uh, you know, as a teenage boy, um, your husband needs to realize that there's a lot more years ahead of you that you'll be living with him as an adult. And I don't mean living in the same house, but I mean your your relationship. Um, this is a great opportunity to make sure that relationship as adults turns into a a relationship based on love and respect. I say all the time, Anonymous, that um, you can't be your son's or your kid's friends when they're growing up. you got to be their parents. But when they grow up, they go their own way. It's wonderful to be friends. I'm friends with both of my sons and their wives and, and my grandchildren. I absolutely love to hang around with them. Um, they're friends. Uh, I'm, I'm their dad, but I'm no longer the authority figure in their lives, and I can trust them to the Lord. Great question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Bruce wants to know: Is hell a present location or a future location? Um, Literally, Bruce, hell isn't doesn't exist yet. Uh, separation from God exists. It's a place called um, um, uh, the place of torment. Luke chapter sixteen defines it clearly. The the unrighteous dead go to this place of torment, and the the righteous dead before Jesus's death and resurrection went to what's called paradise or Abraham's bosom. Um, so so th- there's no real hell. Hell, the eternal hell, will be the great lake of fire at the great white throne judgment and that's where everybody will spend forever who rejects Jesus Christ so it's a future location um, but but that that place of torment still exists uh, in the center of the earth in the abyss the abuso in Greek and Luke chapter 16 makes that really really clear in the process of, of identifying it so Bruce um, when we talk about uh, Gehenna or we talk about all the symbolism that Jesus used to explain or to describe hell, um, he, that it's not hell on earth. The, the, the lake of fire will be something that will be, uh, it's created for the, for the devil and his fallen angels and for all of those who reject Jesus Christ. By the way, the Lake of Fire is going to have uh, two occupants for a thousand years during the Great Tribulation and then uh, after that for the, uh, the uh, millennial reign of Christ on earth. Um, the, the man that we know as the Antichrist and then his religious helper, the false prophet, they will be the first two cast into the Lake of Fire. They're going to be there for a thousand years before anybody else. So thank you for that question. You've got three minutes. Here's the last question. Um, you know what? I'm not going to do this one until tomorrow or till Friday because I've, I've asked, answered a similar question yesterday. Here's a question from Janet. I asked another online answer show this question and want to know what you think. Why was God so harsh with Moses at the end of his life? Janet, the, the answer, I, I, I mentioned it earlier too. Much is given, much is required. Uh, Moses 
uh, was super accountable because of the things that uh, he saw, the things that God, God sat with him and spoke with him as a friend speaks to a friend. Now, that doesn't mean that Moses saw God in all his glory. He couldn't do that. But the way he talked to, to, to Moses was the way I would talk or the way you would talk to a friend. And he had great responsibility. God used him to do miraculous things. And Moses was God's representative, and God is very serious about how he's represented in this world. And um, because much is required, much more is required of those of us uh, who have been given more by the Lord, um, the, the, the consequences sometimes are more difficult, just as the rewards for some people will be greater. But God wasn't harsh with Moses at all. God was gracious. He didn't allow him to go into the promised land, but we know that Moses made it to the promised land. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. So um, Moses was honored, but, but God simply said, you got angry at my people. You know, one of the things, Janet, I tell all my pastors is the people here at Calvary Chapel San Antonio, Jesus loves them. He's put that love in my heart for them. Nobody yells at them. Nobody disrespects them. We don't lose patience with them or get frustrated with them. We can't do that. Now, obviously, Christians get frustrated and impatient all the time. But I tell my pastors, you've been called by God to be a pastor. You've been given this wonderful privilege, and you simply cannot misrepresent the Lord or me. There will be consequences if that's the case. I tell them all the time, you can't have a bad day. If you have a bad day, go work it out with Jesus. But you can't let a bad day influence the rest of your life or your relationships with other people. At home, in church, you've got to be aware that Jesus gives great honor and glory, great privilege, but there's also great accountability. So that's why. Hope that helps, Janet. Hey, tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio on the Date Day edition of the program. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, we'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.